Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 10 We Have a Plan DCCU News Suicide Squad I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel to predict their impact on the eagerly anticipated DC Cinematic Universe. Today, we're looking at Jor-El's plan to stop the Kryptonians. It's one of the most commonly criticized parts of the film, where detractors offer alternatives without really thinking them through. Well, we're going to think them through. I'm going to walk you through the elements of the plan and show why it was probably the best plan that they could come up with given the time and the information that they had available. We'll also briefly go over the DCCU news, including the recent Suicide Squad announcement, and see if there's anything that we can learn from Flash versus Arrow and answer some mailbag questions. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel, answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who loved Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. So I'm going to start with the elements of the plan, what we have, and explore the alternatives and why they're inferior to Jor-El's plan. And along the way, we'll tackle the related plot hole allegations. I'm going to lay out the elements and the basic justification, and then we'll go back and explore each point. Well, first of all, the plan required a singularity. It required timing. It required coordination. And then it required an assignment of tasks. So the singularity, it's Kal-El's ship, which is necessary for creating the singularity, which is a weakness specific to the Black Zero. The plan required specific timing and had to happen after the release of the World Engine and while the Phantom Drive was active on both the Black Zero and Kal-El's ship. The plan required coordination. It had to be a near simultaneous strike. A sequential approach would have been disastrous and it gives up the advantage of the singularity. And finally, there had to be an assignment of tasks. Superman's assignment to the World Engine makes best use of humanity's cooperation and avoids the risk of losing Superman to the singularity. Superman is capable of tackling the World Engine, and humanity is capable of delivering the ship. The reverse is not clearly true. So that's the overview. Let's go and talk about these points individually. First off, we've got timing. And one of the questions that relates to Jor-El's plan is, why did it have to happen when it happened? There's a popular and amusing video covering the Man of Steel by the folks at How It Should Have Ended. If you've watched their videos, I think it's clear that they have an affection for Superman and the points raised in their videos are intended primarily for comedic effect rather than any malice towards the film or the character. They, of course, raise a number of alleged issues, which I'll be covering eventually, but today we're focused on Jor-El's plan. In the How It Should Have Ended video, they raise the alternative strategy or quote-unquote ending, of Superman blitzing the Black Zero by unexpectedly delivering his ship to the Black Zero while the ultimatum clock was still ticking and while the Black Zero was in orbit. This would not have worked. Both 
phantom drives must be active and on in order for the singularity to be created. If the phantom drive being on was irrelevant, then there was no point to Dr. Hamilton's contribution. However, the film makes it evident that his activation of Kal-El's ship is vital. While the How It Should Have Ended video shows Kal-El's ship crackling with energy and presumably with its phantom drive active, it is then missing the activation of the phantom drive on the Black Zero. The Black Zero is perfectly capable of operating without the phantom drive online. This is proven by the fact that it operated as such before Zod managed to retrofit the phantom projector into a hyperdrive. Nothing we see about the Black Zero's operation after its arrival in our solar system and before the release of the world engine represents something that we haven't already seen accomplished without a hyperdrive, as proven by the sentencing scene on Krypton. And of course, this is all made much more clear when Zod explicitly states, bring the Phantom Drive online, making it quite clear that it was offline prior to his statement. Now, by way of quick explanation, why did Zod bring the Phantom Drive online? And that is to make it slave to and provide energy to the world engine. So what that means is that any plan intending to use the Singularity had to happen after the release of the world engine. A preemptive attack like the one proposed by how it should have ended would have done nothing but piss the Kryptonians off and forfeit Kal-El's ship. The Kryptonians had no intention of leaving our solar system, so the one and only thing that would cause them to spin up that phantom drive is the deployment of the world engine. Jor-El's plan hinged on this fact, which would make the plan stupid if deployment of the world engine was optional or unlikely. However, as we've already discussed in the mailbag last episode, it was completely reasonable for Jor-El to anticipate that Zod always intended to terraform Earth. It's why he could relate a reliable plan to Lois even before Zod had released the world engine. Now, if you don't like that reasoning, Zod explicitly tells Clark that the foundation has to be built on something, combining it with imagery of Earth being terraformed while in the Dream Machine. If the Dream Machine is a part of the ship and Jor-El had access to that aspect of the ship, then he could have been explicitly aware of Zod's plans without having to predict or anticipate them. Either way, the point remains. Zod says that it must be quote-unquote built on something, meaning that the terraform process can't be built on nothing. They cannot simply terraform any old rock, so we know that the world engine is going to be set loose on Earth, we know that the Phantom Drive is going to be spun up for it, so Jor-El's counterattack plan had to occur after the deployment of the World Engine, and only then. So then we go on to our next element of coordination. It's along the same or similar lines as timing. Jor-El's plan required a coordinated strike. If the plan is for a nearly simultaneous strike, then you have the question of assignment. Which of the two prongs should be Superman's responsibility? If, however, the plan is for consecutive or sequential strikes, then the assignment question is raised. And the question is, which of the prongs should Superman strike first? Since Jor-El's plan calls for concurrent strikes, let's explore why consecutive strikes by Superman are a bad idea first. So you got two basic approaches, and the, and the first is that Superman takes the world engine on, the other is that Superman takes the Black Zero on first. Let's look at the first approach. And in the first approach, Superman is taking on the world engine, then he's going to fly back to Metropolis, pick up his ship, and deliver it to the Black Zero. Well, as we just discussed in the previous timing element, there's a serious timing issue with that. With the world engine destroyed, 
there's no reason to keep the phantom drive active and spun up. As we discussed in last episode, the phantom drive is a finite resource. Its invention didn't solve Krypton's resource dilemma or stop them from mining their own core. So the Kryptonians would have every reason to deactivate the phantom drive after the world engine had been destroyed. If they're given the time to do this with a sequential or consecutive strike, then the singularity aspect of the plan goes out the window. And now Superman has to fight a ship full of angry Kryptonians when he has struggled to fight even just two. In the second approach, Superman takes on the Black Zero first, and then he goes off to fight the World Engine. Well, let's quickly talk about the logistics of Superman by himself, or more or less by himself, delivering the ship. Even if we assume that Superman has no problem carrying or transporting the ship quickly, and that's a big assumption, because we've never actually seen him move anything that large while flying, even when it would have made sense in the movie to do so, for example, during the rescue of Lois in the escape pod. If he could do it, and if he could move the pod at high speed without turning Lois into jelly inside, then it would have made sense for him to bring the pod to ground level very quickly, and then rescue her from the pod safely on the ground, as opposed to the uh, mid-air rescue that we saw. But ignoring that, let's assume that he can still carry things and move things uh, without much trouble, Superman has to work out a way to activate it in mid-flight, or else he has to double his speed. Now why? And the reason is because it's reasonable to assume that the activation of a phantom drive is something that would have been picked up by the Black Zero sensors. That explains why under this plan, they have not tested the engine before attacking. If they had tested it, that would have been an invitation for Zod to send dropships to attack or intercept Kalil's ship even before it got off the ground. This also explains why Dr. Hamilton and Lois were on the C-17. They were there to deal with any emergent issues that arose. And in fact, that's exactly what Dr. Hamilton does. And that's also what Lois does, albeit not for a particularly complex issue, but Hamilton is the one that figures out the alignment issue. And Lois is the one who's able to share her firsthand experience that the command key should be flush with the console. The military wanted Hamilton there to tackle the unexpected. And Lois got herself there based on her firsthand receipt of Jor-El's plan and experience aboard a Kryptonian vessel. Even if she tries to convey everything she knows fully to others to execute, who knows what emergent issues may arise which trigger a fact or a memory which she's uniquely privy to. I don't think that she withheld knowledge in order to gain a journalistic advantage while the fate of the world hung in the balance, but I do believe that she would volunteer her presence to the military for the reasons that I've described, and in the process, gain a journalistic advantage. As she says, well, what can I say? I get writer's block if I'm not wearing a flak jacket. Now, aside from having limited information on what turning on a phantom drive would do, we see that when it is turned on, it sends out a field which throws Lois from the plane. We also see that the ship is not infinitely durable. Feora is able to casually bend the hull of the ship when she searches it for the codex. So transporting this vital piece of technology at high speeds may or may not be something that it can withstand. Now putting all of that aside, let's pretend that delivering the ship is effortless and effective. You still have a major issue in that Superman attacking the Black Zero first may leave the world engine intact with no one to stop it. This issue overlaps with the assignment element, so we'll discuss that right now. 
So the other two elements is the singularity and the assignment, and assuming a nearly simultaneous strike, you have the option of assigning Superman to either the World Engine or the Black Zero. Humanity gets whichever one Superman is not assigned to. Now remember that the singularity-based plan requires the delivery of the ship and its phantom drive into proximity with another phantom drive. Remember that the World Engine does not have a phantom drive. The World Engine was recovered from the dead colonies from the Age of Exploration, predating Jor-El's Phantom Drive technology by thousands of years. That means simply that the World Engine is not susceptible to the singularity-based attack that the Black Zero is vulnerable to. It also means that the World Engine is not dependent on the Black Zero's Phantom Drive to operate, because clearly... The World Engine was built and deployed before Phantom Drives existed. That means that the World Engine will continue to run even if the Black Zero is destroyed first. If Superman takes on the World Engine, humanity can still deliver the ship to exploit the Singularity weakness against the Black Zero. However, if Superman takes on the Black Zero, even if he can as we've discussed above, humanity has no clear weakness to exploit against the World Engine. The fact that Zod deployed it without escorts suggests that the World Engine's defenses would be more than sufficient to protect it from anything that humanity could throw at it. So even if we ignore this glaring issue with that version of the plan, there is the serious problem of Superman being the one to trigger the singularity, and that's the possibility that he gets sucked into it. You may recall us discussing this in our very first episode, explaining why Lois can freefall while other things are sucked into the singularity. In brief, things that were either bathed in Phantom Zone energy when struck by the gravity beam, or whatever has already been inside the Phantom Zone, would be drawn back towards the Phantom Zone through the singularity. Now obviously Zod's crew has been in the Phantom Zone since they were incarcerated there. However, you may have overlooked the fact that Superman has also been through the Phantom Zone as well. When he journeyed to Earth as a baby, the Phantom Drive on his ship allowed him to pass through the Phantom Zone to get to Earth from Krypton. And that's why Superman had to fight the pull of the singularity when rescuing Lois. Now we know that Superman can just escape the singularity when he rescues Lois from falling. However, Jor-El wouldn't know that, and this is Jor-El's plan. Now, even if we assume that the conditions would be identical had Superman been the one to trigger the singularity, sending Superman against the Black Zero doesn't make sense because the scope of his powers are undefined and unknown to Jor-El. As Jor-El says, you've grown stronger here than I could ever have imagined. The only way to know how strong is to keep testing your limits. That means that Superman's ability to resist the singularity is an unknown, an X-factor. And even if Jor-El had held no sentimentality towards the survival of his one and only son, it makes no sense to take the uncertain risk of losing Superman against the Black Zero and then have no one left to fight the World Engine. When you have a perfectly viable alternative. To break this down even further, 
If you send Superman to take on the Black Zero, there's basically three outcomes. The first outcome is that he fails. Until now, we've given him the benefit of a lot of assumptions, that he can carry the ship without issue, that he can approach it without being detected or intercepted, that he can circumvent the gravity field, and that the Phantom Drive will arrive activated and intact. All of those are convenient assumptions, and it's possible that they don't all come together and that Superman fails. Well, obviously, that's not a great outcome. The second outcome is that Superman is swallowed up by the singularity. And that leaves us with a world engine still set to wipe out humanity. It leaves us with Zod in a scout ship and no motivation to stop it. Now, Zod may decide that the growth codex on the scout ship is enough and restart Krypton that way. However, since he was disinclined even towards natural birth, I think he may be simply content to turn Earth into a planetary scale headstone for his fallen people. And the third outcome is that Superman survives the singularity and now he sets off heroically to stop the world engine. Well, remember how difficult it was for Superman to defeat the world engine in the first place? He was left on his back, exhausted, reaching towards the sun. Now imagine Superman tackling that same task while simultaneously trying to fight Zod in the scout ship. Remember that the dropship weapons were able to knock Superman out long enough to effectuate Zod's retreat from Smallville. The scout ship also had weapons which took out the C-17's escort. So you have weapons of that magnitude at Zod's disposal. You have the world engine itself. And finally, you have Zod, an extremely motivated Zod. Under this scenario, Zod still has everything he needs to make his dreams come true. If he kills Kal-El, he will have the Codex. He has the Genesis Chamber from the scout ship, and he has the world engine to terraform the planet. Meanwhile, Superman is under the clock to stop the world engine before humanity is exterminated. Now, maybe Superman could overcome all these odds, but why would Jor-El issue a plan that stacks the deck against yourself when he's got that perfect, viable alternative? And so Jor-El's plan is clearly the best. It overcomes all of these issues plaguing the proposed alternatives. It makes efficient use of the singularity. The proposed alternatives cause you to lose your window, and it leaves Earth to fight an entire ship full of Kryptonians angry at the destruction of their world engine. The timing of Jor-El's plan works. The plan anticipates a strike after the Phantom Drive is active, after the world engine is downed, but before the Kryptonians deactivate or spin down the Phantom Drive. And finally, the division of tasks was the best possible assignment. Superman can handle the world engine, and the military could handle the delivering of the ship. You reverse it, and you risk losing Superman to the singularity, and you leave Earth to fend for itself against the world engine and Zod. So there you have it. Nowhere near as concise or comedic as how it should have ended, but logically sound and consistent. The characters within the film are acting rationally and intelligently for the problem as written. You're the answer, son. Since our last episode, we've had two big pieces of DCCU news. The announcement of Wonder Woman's director and the announcement of Suicide Squad's cast. Hollywood Reporter broke the exclusive that Michelle McLaren has been signed to direct Wonder Woman. While this is a reputable trade magazine, like Variety, note that the news is reported but not official. The press may have personally confirmed this report, but to date there has been no direct comment, announcement, or press release by Warner Brothers. I'm not saying you can't take it to the bank that she's signed, but be cognizant of the fact that the WB has not officially announced or confirmed this yet. Most likely they're waiting for a writer before they issue a formal press release, so we'll discuss it then. On the other hand, 
hand, the WB has given us a wealth of information confirming and killing many of the rumors swirling around the next film to follow BVS, Suicide Squad. We know that filming begins in April, so it was vital that those contracts be secured in a timely fashion. Who is the Suicide Squad, you ask? Well, there's no better person than Amanda Waller herself to explain it to you. Task Force X is an off-the-books government strike team made up of convicts with no hope for release, serving as expendable agents for impossible missions. Succeed, and I'll shave time off your sentences. If we don't. You'll be dead. Any other stupid questions? Yeah, what's in my neck? A tracker? Yes, and a powerful nanotech explosive. Run away, get yourself captured, disobey an order, hell. Give me a right answer too slowly, and I'll blow your head clean off. That was an excerpt from Batman Assault on Arkham, a direct-to-video feature by Warner Brothers Animation. Be advised, if you haven't been keeping up with these animated features, they are tending to be darker and more graphic and more violent lately. Nonetheless, they're well made by some of the most talented people in the domestic animated business. I continue to support them because the more product that they produce, which is well-received, the more that's going to get made, giving us more chances to come back around to Superman, the Justice League, and the other characters in DC's Pantheon. Another reason I'm talking this feature up so much is because I guarantee that a copy of this animation was sent to each and every cast member and their agents and their representation to entice them into being a part of the live action feature film. A pitch becomes much more tangible when you have something like this to refer to. As a quick aside, Warner Brothers bought into the Matrix on the strength of storyboards paired by graphic artists and comic book artists brought in by the Wachowskis. The utterly cheesy shoot 'em up managed to snag a studio using a 17 minute hand animated reel showing off some of the action scenes. So, having something like this to show your talent can be a powerful lure, and hopefully, this bodes well for Warner Brothers Animation, whose profitability is sometimes given a pass as RD or research and development. Well, if it saves you a lengthy and expensive talent search and it helps you reel in top talent, its production cost more than pays for itself. All that said, many are looking to Assault on Arkham as a shot-for-shot template for Suicide Squad, and I hope that isn't the case. Based on the characters that have been cast, I think we can know that it won't be the case. Now, speaking of the characters and cast, let's just run them down. For the characters, we've got the professionals and the crazies. Though, if we're honest, they're all crazy. First, we've got Rick Flagg who is a ranked military officer that gets recruited into the Suicide Squad by Waller. He generally plays the role of handler and straight man, but he's not without his own issues. What his inclusion in the roster may suggest is that this Suicide Squad is government-run. Not that private military doesn't exist, but there is an aspect of duty and service that traditionally drives Flag. And despite this dark side to the government's underbelly, Flag's inclusion suggests that they are willing to follow some rules that require a handler like Flag. Next, we've got Deadshot or Floyd Lawton. He's a marksman and assassin for hire who is one of the most adapted DC villains ever, appearing in a wide range of shows and games, etc. Some of his portrayals have has him as a remorseless gentleman serial killer, while others have him bordering on a soldier with a heart of gold, doing what he can to get back to his family. 
his adaptation here can serve as a litmus test of how comic booky the DCCU is going to get. Deadshot also has a flamboyant costume which includes a cybernetic eyepiece and wrist-mounted firearms. You can see a wide spectrum of possible adaptation with these elements. Next, we've got Boomerang, as the press release calls him, traditionally Captain Boomerang, or Digger Harkness, or George Harkness in the Justice League Unlimited, also falls into a similar category. We can see how gadgety they want to get with the thrown weapons. He's traditionally a Flash villain, but generally not regarded as one so important as to warrant a feature film. So he's perhaps the most disposable of this disposable team. If you watched the Arrow half of the Flash and Arrow crossover this week, you can see that they did a decent job of making him a viable threat and justifying his boomerangs as intelligently guided munitions with variable payloads which double as effective close-ranged weaponry. Basically, he can hit you around cover, his boomerangs can carry tricks which ordinary bullets don't, like explosives, and they work as knives close up. Older rumors suggested that Harkness would be emphasized as a thrown weapon specialist, and that could distinguish him as stealthy compared to Deadshot's firearms. Their mutual talent for accuracy is a setup for some gags or competition. So on to the crazies. But just a quick hint from the press release. Now, generally for press releases, the order of the cast announcement indicates the size of their role. So while Jared Leto is an Academy Award winner portraying the iconic Joker, you may notice that Deadshot, Flag, and Harley Quinn come before him. And if you're curious, incidentally, Henry Cavill as Clark Kent and Superman precedes Ben Affleck as Bruce Wayne and Batman in their press releases. So I'm going to talk about Joker, but there's reason to suspect that he may be sprinkled in like seasoning on this film and have a smaller role than even Harley Quinn. Joker's undoubtedly the most iconic character in this lineup. I dare say that even if the rumors of Lex Luthor being included in this film are true, that won't change anything. The fact that Batman is a weary veteran and that Harley is in this film means that the, for the first time on film we're getting a Joker with a history that goes beyond a flamboyant debut. Rather than being a candle burning brightly from both ends, this is a Joker that has gone the distance with the bat. And that's actually more in line with the Joker from the comics. This is a Joker who isn't so insane as to self-destruct while locked in combat with Batman for years. A Joker actually able to have at least one relationship with Harley. That kind of Joker might be able to have a place on the squad, he might be able to team up with Luther or have a seat in the Secret Society or Legion of Doom. However, as many have suggested, he may simply play a Hannibal Lecter type role without giving away too much. Harley Quinn is easily the second most iconic character on this list. Despite being created in the early 90s, she has quickly rose in prominence. There may be an amplification on the efficacy of martial arts and acrobatics to justify Harley Quinn's combat contributions, if any. But I think I'd prefer it if they emphasize her fractured mind and her skills as a psychotherapist. We might get some of that bubbly, insane airhead, but I don't want it to be so far gone that her position on the squad is unreasonable. Undoubtedly, Harley is going to bring some much-needed levity to an otherwise dark film. She represents a history with Joker, meaning that the world of weird in the DCCU predates Superman's debut. However, like everyone else mentioned this far, nothing supernatural, paranormal, or superpowered is required. And that brings us to Enchantress, 
who is potentially the most powerful member, if they maintain that she has magical powers. It's possible to do a spin on the character where she's not actually powered, or if it's somewhat ambiguous. For example, if she was a mentalist or has similar low-key abilities that can be interpreted either as magic or stagecraft. However, if they do go supernatural, Enchantress could conceivably harm even Superman. Not because Superman's allergic to magic, mind you, but because he is as susceptible to things which defy the laws of science as anyone else. That rant is another episode. Enchantress is a more powerful being trapped within the young female artist June Moon. June has been portrayed as fighting the Enchantress as an evil secondary personality, making June come off as perhaps mentally ill. Traditionally, she's been beholden to the Suicide Squad not because of coercion, but because she's promised a means of banishing or handling this Enchantress entity. As the character comes last in the press release, I don't know that they're going to go that big with the character necessarily. We've talked about the characters, so let's talk about the cast. Headlined by Will Smith, he's got nothing to prove. But if he did, doing an ensemble is one way of putting to rest the allegations and to remind people that he's a talented actor and not just a celebrity. This is a two-time Academy Award nominee for Best Actor. We have Tom Hardy, who is able to completely disappear into a role and is no stranger to playing a soldier. There's been some concern about whether being Bane in The Dark Knight Rises will confuse audiences, but given the mask and the affected way of speaking, I think it's a complete non-issue. If you want to talk about range, he's a man who played Bronson and is playing Elton John in the Rocket Man biopic. He's a strong and seasoned actor. Margot Robbie is a rising star. I've yet to watch Wolf of Wall Street, but she was courted for the live-action adaptation of Ghost in the Shell, and she was a main member of the cast for ABC's attempt at a network madman successor, Pan Am. Doubtless, she brings beauty to the film, but I'm more interested in seeing what Scorsese saw to select her to hold her own against DiCaprio. Even more interesting is that Robbie will be coming off a film starring directly opposite Smith in 2015's Focus, where Smith plays a seasoned con man who gets romantically involved with Robbie's character and begins teaching her the tricks of the trade. That they signed on together for Suicide Squad suggests that the two have a good working relationship and they trust their chemistry together to work on screen again. If you watched Assault on Arkham, you know that Harley's dalliance with Deadshot is a subplot of the film, so we might see the idea rise again in Suicide Squad. Next up is the Academy Award winner for Best Supporting Actor, Jared Leto. Since his win in 2013's Dallas Buyers Club, he has had his choice of roles, and the fact that he picked Suicide Squad makes for exciting speculation about the potential of this film. We have Jai Courtney, who has been a leading man or a solid player in big franchises and action films. He doesn't tend to stand out, but that's great in an ensemble. He's typically played Americans, but if they keep Harkness as an Aussie, he can tap into his roots. And finally, we've got Cara Delevingne, perhaps best known for being a Victoria's Secret model. I know her as a radio DJ from Nonstop Pop FM in Grand Theft Auto V. She has a face capable of wacky cartoony looks one moment and then that deadpan supermodel glare the next. So I think a split personality is going to be well within her wheelhouse. 
Well, we've talked about the characters, we've talked about the casts, let's just briefly touch on the creators. David Ayer is set to direct, and he's obtained Oscar-nominated and winning performances in Training Day. He's directed a number of ensemble star-studded casts, and whatever reputation Will Smith may have, just consider that Ayer has just directed Shia LaBeouf in Fury. Also reinforced in the press release is the fact that Ayer is now writing the script. Zack Snyder is set to produce, but lest you be worried about divided attentions, remember that he was a producer on 300 Rise of the Empire while working on Man of Steel. Although I expect that he'll be more involved since this film immediately follows BVS, ties into the DCCU, and leads into his Justice League film, all of that is a good thing because we're going to get a more cohesive universe. None of this guarantees that the movie is going to be good, but it shows that Warner Brothers is fully committed towards making the DCCU work. They're not setting Superman up for a fall, and they're not making Batman carry the ball. They legitimately want to make everything work, from their biggest icons to their quirkiest no-name, no-brand property. This film just doubled the number of named licensed characters in the DCCU. It's going to contribute to the world building. It's going to increase the profile of Batman and Superman who preside over this world. You're the answer, son. A few more tidbits of news related to Batman v Superman. We've seen some shots of the now-dressed New Mexico set via local news station KRQE 13. It's clear now that the set is meant to be an adobe styled architecture, which tends to take it out of the Mediterranean and acting as Themyscira as initially speculated. A Tyranny of Style article did a feature on the BVS costume designer Michael Wilkinson. In it, we learned that he's doing costuming for 60 extras on the New Mexico shoot. The article alleges that the shoot is projected to be 140 days, that the scenes are set in various international locations, that the film includes over 10,000 extras and has 250 speaking roles. I didn't have an intuition for whether that's a lot or a little, so I did a little research and a study from the top 100 films from 2012 indicates that those films averaged about 48 speaking roles per film, so take that for what you will. Now speaking about shoot length, as of December 5th, shooting on BVS has wrapped. To give you a little perspective on the Batman v Superman shooting schedule, let's look at a couple of other films. Raiders of the Ark took just 75 days, whereas the Lord of the Rings trilogy took 274 days plus pickups, with all three movies being filmed concurrently. Django Unchained was a little under 130 days, Jaws shot for 116 days, and Eyes Wide Shut still holds the Guinness Book of World Records of 400 days. Now, we know that some of those days were spent shooting in IMAX. However, not the whole film, as BVS has only one of the four 65mm IMAX cameras in the world. The other three were with J.J. Abrams for Star Wars. And we're not going to talk about the 88-second teaser trailer. That's another podcast entirely. Now, IMAX cameras are larger, heavier, and noisier. They only allow for shooting times between 30 seconds to 2 minutes, and they use much more expensive film stock. So IMAX is a luxury and a treat, but it's not suitable for shooting a full-length feature film just yet. The inclusion of IMAX means that they will have genuine material for true IMAX theaters, and that can result in a box office boost. No word yet on whether Batman v Superman is attempting a 3D conversion as well. Remarkably, very little about the plot 
and even the characters of Batman v Superman has leaked as it enters post-production. Well, if you're a fan of superhero matchups and of tangential relevance to the upcoming Batman v Superman is the recent two-night crossover event of Flash vs. Arrow on the CW. First with Flash v Arrow on Season 1, Episode 8 of The Flash on Tuesday, followed by The Brave and the Bold on Season 3, Episode 8 of The Arrow on Wednesday night. As we've discussed, Batman v Superman has already wrapped, so it's not so much what they can learn from the crossover, but what we can learn from the crossover. First, crossovers sell. Both shows saw a ratings boost. Arrow breaking records in its target demo. Second, aside from the friendly spar at the end of the Arrow episode, they leaned into one of the classic means of setting up a fight, and that was basically deploying red kryptonite in the form of Rainbow Raider or Roy G. Bivolo. Now, to me, such fights are a little bit shallow and meaningless because it's Batman fighting somebody with Superman's powers, mostly not Superman. The only part of Superman is the part that holds back to make these fights plausible or work. And it goes without saying that it's never Superman versus a mind-controlled Batman. But it's a setup that's used time and time again. Some variation of influence, be it Poison Ivy, Mind Control, Starro, etc., to drive Superman into fighting. As we discussed in episode 2, it's my preference that their conflict stems from something closer to their characters, making the fight and the eventual resolution more meaningful. A third thing that we learn from the Flash and Arrow fight is that showing a rookie superhero provides allowances or excuses for suboptimal behavior. It doesn't shed Flash or Superman in the best light necessarily, but it can cast a justifiable or relatable reasons for their mistakes. Fourth and finally, the crossover showed that these characters can have differences, they can have conflicts, but they can still work together, learn from each other, and develop a stronger bond afterwards. Film isn't TV, or vice versa, so I wouldn't take any of these comparisons or parallels too seriously, but if nothing else, it whets our appetites to see more superheroes come together on screen. You're the answer, son. Okay, I'm running a little long today, so I'm just going to handle two pieces of mail. Maggie writes in with a comment regarding our last episode about the secret identity. She says basically that the easiest way to solve the secret identity is to lose it. She says killing Clark Kent means less of a need to preserve the identity. Um, that's an interesting idea. It would tend to subject Superman to less scrutiny and make it slightly easier to maintain, but as long as Martha is still alive, it's still a secret that has to be kept. I also tend to fall into the camp that, at least for now, Superman needs to be Clark Kent, but that's another episode. So, interesting insight, interesting idea, uh, but I, I hope they don't kill off Clark Kent in Batman v Superman. I think it's a little bit too early, but we'll see. Uh, Simon asks why Jor-El's AI could not have dispensed of the Kryptonians himself once he was uploaded onto the ship. If Jor-El could control the ship, why didn't he just send the Black Zero into a red sun or vent all the atmosphere? Well, there's two possible answers. Uh, one is that, as established by Jor-El's exorcism from the scout ship, his presence can be contained and eliminated. Uh, I don't believe that Jor-El can control the ship necessarily, because if he could, he might have tried to flee from Zod's approach. Another possible answer, there's another variation of the question, 
which is, if Jor-El could clearly control the atmospherics on the ship, why didn't he weaponize that? And most likely because he couldn't change it beyond the parameters already provided. This is a black box of sci-fi technology. We can't assume that just because Jor-El can take limited command of the atmospherics or closed doors, that he has absolute control over the ship. And in fact, both those systems are often tied to emergency fire suppression routines, which may severely limit the scope of what Jor-El can do on the ship. So to cut a long answer short, basically Jor-El did what he could. So the fact that we see him change the atmospherics and close doors, that's basically all he can do. And as the fire suppression explanation provides, there's a reasonable reason to allow that that's all he can do. You know what? We've got a little more time, so let's just take a couple of more questions. By the way, it's been raining constantly, and this has been my only chance to record. So I apologize if there's the sound of rain in the background. Loyal listener Jonathan, who you can thank for today's topic, asks, Will General Zod return in Batman v Superman? And my answer is... No, um, I don't think so. They could do it as a flashback. They can do it as a body or as a clone. However, most likely this question stems from Michael Shannon being spotted in Chicago with Henry Cavill. However, as Shannon is a Chicago native and having been raised there, he needs no excuse to be in Chicago or to hang out with his castmates. Personally, I don't think this suggests a reprisal of the character in a film that's already jam-packed with new faces. But what I think it does speak to is that Shannon and Cavill both live up to their reputations as people you want to hang out with. There's nothing obligating Shannon to socialize with Cavill or vice versa, unless they genuinely enjoy each other's company, and that kind of camaraderie bodes well for the man who's going to be the face of the Justice League. He's going to have to get along with a number of actors, and it looks like Shannon likes the guy. Uh, Jonathan also asks, do you think the DCCU movies will take place in chronological order? Well, the strongest suggestion for taking place in chronological order is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where everything acts as a chronological progression. The strongest suggestion for not following the chronological order is the number of solo films that are coming after the presumed debut of the characters on film, and the presumption that solo films tend towards showing on-screen origins. So, for example, Wonder Woman following Batman v Superman, and all of the League solo films coming after Justice League Part 1. Well, honestly, we only have one data point. So if we follow Man of Steel, then there will be a chronological progression, but also flashback sequences to other periods in the past. But frankly, it's too soon to tell. I just want good films, I just want good stories, and a chronological format does not necessarily dictate it being better or worse. One last one. Uh, will they explain Superman's suit change? Uh, Jonathan's referring to the fact that there has been subtle differences in the change to uh, Superman's costume from Man of Steel. Probably the most notable one is the change of the belt buckle, but there are some differences in the trim, uh, in the piping, and throughout the suit. Well, to that, I'd say go back to episode two of the podcast. If they take the steward of Krypton approach, and that's where Superman has access to Kryptonian technology, then it's easy to explain the changes in the suit without actually having to explain it. Any changes can be implicitly a part of the access to technology implicitly allows for changes in the suit. However, 
these design changes are subtle enough that I don't think it necessarily warrants an on-screen explanation whether or not they follow the steward of Krypton approach. Um, uh, that's all the time we have for today. All right, I think I've rambled on long enough. Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network. So here are some promos for the network shows that I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, the DC Comics Presents Show, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast, The Kara Zero Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up, Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy Podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen's podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Brad, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Bruce Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener and hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you've got questions you want answered or insights you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son.